View. If you have your Bible apps or your Bibles, go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians, the first chapter. I didn't have a lot of time. I had a plane to catch, and I, because, of, because of how the situation was going, I, I just had to get to the airport. And so I got into the airport in New Orleans and figured I'd just grab a quick bite to eat as I was making my way onto the plane. And I got into Terminal D, which was where I entered security, only to find that they had three food options and none of them looked very delightful. And so after I paid 13 bucks for a cheese quesadilla and another 4 bucks for a Mountain Dew, I uh, sucked down that succulent lunch and uh, just decided, all right, maybe... Maybe I'll go hungry for the rest of the afternoon, I don't know. So I get on the plane, get in the seat, and sit down, start talking with the girls that were seated next to me, and we just had, a, had an interesting conversation, and, and one of them wasn't very familiar with the flying process. She hadn't been on many planes, and so everything to her was a little, a little anxious and yet a little exciting at the same time, and so she was that person who actually listened when they went through, here's what you do in an event, the oxygen masks come down, and your seat's a flotation device, whereas I'm just like, honey, if that happens, we're screwed, don't worry about it. You just pray, and you don't worry about, you know, because they're just going to find pieces. I mean, really, all that flotation device is for, let me help you, all the, all the flotation device is for is so when the supervisors come and examine your dead body, they then go to the master list and see, oh, that seat was missing. Here's Brian's parts. I mean, really, that's all it's good for. Because even if the flotation device works and you're taking off from New Orleans, you're just floating now in a swamp. And so all those gators from swamp people are time for their revenge, all right? And you're done. So you just know, you just know that when you get in the little tin box, that if this goes down, it's not ending well. And you're just more at peace that way, I find anyways. And so I explained this to her, which interestingly enough didn't help the process at all. She freaked out a little bit more. And I asked her if she had any Ambien, and she said no, and I'm like, well, okay, I'll shut up. And so after we took off, and she was getting a little more just a little more at ease. We, we were going through, and she was going through the seat pockets, you know, where the Sky Mall used to be before they went out of business because nobody ever bought the $87 back scratcher that they could call the 800 number for as soon as you landed because your cell phone doesn't work in the airplane when you're looking at their products. I don't know why SkyMall didn't work. Uh, but so that's no longer there, and, and she's going through where that used to be, and she pulls out the Delta tray that, that shows all the succulent feasts that are available, and then there's one page, and it's got a little star, and the star at the bottom says, reserve for our elite and, and premier class or premier cabin guests, and I'm like, honey, that's, that's not us. We're, you know, we're, we're in coach. We're the people that didn't even pay the extra 19 bucks to upgrade to a window or aisle seat. We were just at the mercy of Delta when they sat us here. 
those snacks aren't going to be available to us. And so as the flight attendant's coming through, he overhears this conversation, and he starts cracking up. And he was just the happiest flight attendant I've ever met in my entire life. Normally, they're, they're kind of grumpy, I've found, because they have to deal with people all day who are very stressed out because of travel conditions, and so they're not very nice. And you can just take so much of that in one. But this guy, he was, he was incredible. And he was an exception, and, and he just overheard our conversation. He was laughing, and we asked him, oh, what snacks are available to us? And he threw us the little bag of complimentary pretzels that have 11 pretzels in it, by the way, 11 stale pretzels. And I know that because I paid $13 for a cheese quesadilla that wasn't very filling or very good. And, and as, I'm, as I've got these pretzels in my hand, all, all 11 of them, and then this this little, this little, it's, it's a little larger than a Dixie cup, the drink, but what they do is they cram so much ice in it that one can of Coke can serve six customers. I mean, you literally get about two ounces of Coke there, but in all fairness to Delta, you don't really need that much because they just have given you 11 stale pretzels, so you really aren't going to drink all that much because the pretzels aren't even full-size pretzels. You know, they're like the, the like, just the, just the tiny little finger pret- I mean, they're, they're, they're nothing. And, and so we, all three of us, we eat our snacks, we drink our two ounces of Coke, find that to be very refreshing, and all of a sudden we see the flight attendant back, and he's got something for us, first class contraband. He hands us, he hands us a pack of M&Ms. Now, I'm not talking like a fun-sized pack. I'm talking a pack so big that when you look at the nutrition on the back, it says each serving has 200 calories, and there's two servings. Yes! 400 calories of M&Ms have just been given to me. Awesome. And then we think, what other goodness could, could he have? He brings us each our own can of Coke. And, and gourmet chocolate-covered blueberries. Now, normally it takes a lot to excite me, but normally I don't pay $13 for a cheese quesadilla that's not very good and, and wash that down with 11 stale finger pretzels and two ounces of Coke. This was absolutely incredible. This is what they were feasting on in first class. Not the 11 little pretzels. No, no, no. Gourmet, chocolate-covered blueberries. 400-calorie packs of M&Ms. Full cans of Coke. It's incredible. No, I still don't plan on flying first class because I'm cheap, but it was absolutely incredible, especially in that moment when I was starving just to get a small taste of what it was like to be riding in the first class cabin. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, there's a theme that we're, gonna, we're going to see over and over and over again. And that is his preeminence. We are going to see Jesus' preeminence. The fact that he is set apart in position. He is, he is set apart. He is set above the rest of humanity. He is set apart from all creation. And this morning, 
want you to fully grasp something we can never fully grasp. But I want you to try. I want you to try to wrap your mind around how great God is. I want you to wrap your mind around how truly above Jesus is. Because when we understand this to the best of our ability, which we'll never fully understand, but when we understand it to the best of our ability, it is sobering to us because it puts into perspective just how great God is and just how much God loves us for what he's done for us. And here's what the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Colossae about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the image of the invisible God. In speaking with people who don't arrive at the same conclusion on God that I do, on people who, who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. This right here is an immense struggle for them. And it's one I understand. The argument goes something like this. If there is a deity, if there is a God who loves us and wants to have a relationship with us, who's really, who really wants to be invested in our lives then why does he make himself so difficult to find? Why not reveal himself in an obvious fashion? Now, I know the theological answer to that argument. We know that the holiness of God sets him apart so that no man can look upon him and live. Because God is holy, he is perfect, we are not, we are imperfect. I know the theological answer to that argument. But to those who are far from God, the theological answer to that argument doesn't matter. They don't care. Because they don't see. And they've mistaken the invisible nature of God to be proof that he does not exist. I understand that tension, but I want you to know, if you look to Jesus, he is the visible image of God. 
Do I wish for your sake that God chose right now to reveal himself in a visible fashion so that we could all, I don't know, look up in the sky and just see, see God in all his glory and we're just like, oh, there he is. Yeah, I would love for that to happen. But here's the truth about God. We are not able to understand the mind of God. Because God is so much greater than us. And so while I understand that tension, what I have to do is I have to trust that God in his immense wisdom knows what he's doing. God doesn't perform in ways that I want God to perform. The very essence of who God is prevents that from happening. Because he is the one who's in control. And I want you to know if you're here today and you're struggling with this concept of why does God choose to be invisible, I want you to know you have every right to ask that question. But I also want you to know if you look at the person of Jesus, there's the answer. He is the visibility. The image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Now understand this, this idea of firstborn. It's not in the context that, that we think. Remember, the, the New Testament was originally written in a different language than English. And so sometimes there are words and themes that have different ideas than, than what we convey to them in, in how we speak in our syntax in English. And so this idea of firstborn, where in our culture, where in our understanding, it, when we use it primarily, we're speaking of the, the age of children. And so the firstborn is the oldest child. Well, well, here's the problem with that. Jesus is God and God's eternal. All right? So clearly, the Apostle Paul here in writing to the church in Colossae is not trying to put forward the position that, that Jesus was at some point brought into existence. He is God. He has existed always. He's eternal. Rather, what this idea of firstborn is speaking to is in that of rank. It's in that of preeminence. Preeminence in position, not in the sense we think of, of oldest child. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is the creator. He is the creator. And I understand that many who would, who would be fully developed into, into science would, would, would really struggle with this idea. And today is not meant to be an apologetic or a defense on all the ways that, that science and religion really, really, truly work together. 
But, but what we just have to understand is, is, here's what Scripture says, for by him all things were created. By Jesus, all things were created. And might I suggest that if you struggle with the concept of God because you're, you're all in on science, might I suggest that while you may believe the argument that science presents, that they don't have to answer how everything started. And they don't have to answer how everything started because simply they can't. They can't answer how everything started. Oh, they can go back and go back and reason away and, and really with brilliance talk about all the theories of how matter has and, and galaxies have, have just grown and increased and, and how matter has developed and formed over. But sooner or later, you have to go back to where did it begin? That is an argument that science cannot answer, and so they just reject that they have to come up with an answer. As an individual, I can't buy that answer. I need to know where it began. I need to know how it started. And this is the answer. It started with the Creator. And that creator is Jesus. When you struggle with the invisible nature of God, though he is visible in Jesus, might I suggest that according to Romans chapter 1, that God reveals himself and that which he has made. And the very creation that you would analyze. That it demands there's something more. And that is the path. To finding God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is an eternal and a sustaining force. He is before everything. And in Him, He holds everything together. How our bodies are formed. How we can breathe oxygen. How our earth produces oxygen. How our earth is positioned perfectly so that we're close enough to the sun that we have heat and yet not too far from the sun so that we're just frozen and yet not too close to the sun so that we can actually sustain. is eternal and sustaining and he is the head of the body. 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head of this And so Mission View, let us never lose sight. Let us never lose sight of what we're ultimately about. Yes, we want to impact this world. Yes, we want to help those of you who are far from God. Yes, we want to love our neighbor. But at our core... At our core, all of those things must be a result of our desire to exalt Jesus in everything we do. Because he is preeminent in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And he, Jesus, who is preeminent in everything, his focus and his mission was reconciliation. That we could find peace with God. The God you may struggle to believe in because you can't see him. The God you may struggle to believe in because you feel that science has better answers. The God you may struggle to believe in because at your core you're just not ready to give over every area of your life. You just want to hold on to you. And he came to die so that we could be reconciled. So that we could have a relationship so that we could worship him. See who Jesus is. See his love for you. See his passion for you. And see his willingness for you. To put upon himself what was not his to carry. My sin and your sin. So that we could be reconciled. And find peace. By the blood of his sacrifice. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here's what I want you to know. That our natural state, how, how we are all born, how we all start, our natural state in our relation to God is not one of neutrality. We're not neutral. You may think today, if you are apart from Christ, that you are just neutral on God. You may think, because you have not yet come to terms of whether or not you believe in God, that you're just neutral. And it's, you could go either way. The reality is this. We are all, in our natural state, alienated from God. We are all hostile towards God, not neutral. We are hostile, and we are all engaged in evil. I know that's not a romantic notion. I know tonight when I tuck in Ethan, my two-year-old, I'm not going to be like, you're an alien, and you're hostile towards God, and you are regularly engaged in evil. Especially that last part is true. He is too. And he is regularly engaged in evil. Constant evil. He gets that from his mother mostly. <laughs> now I get that this is not a romantic notion. And, and some of you just went, ooh, like if you obviously don't know Brooke that well. If you did, you would know. He mainly gets that from Brooklyn. She's very evil. Uh, not at all. I get it's not a romantic notion. To think of ourselves that way, think of our kids, our grandkids, but it doesn't matter what's romantic, it matters what's reality. And this is our reality, not worried about romance. I'm worried about us understanding this is who we are in our natural state. Because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, because of his blood, though we are alienated, hostile, and engaged in evil, we can become holy. We can be made blameless. And we can be seen as perfect in his sight. This is the transformation of a relationship with Jesus. That because of his work on our behalf, we are holy. Because of his sacrifice, because of his blood, because he took my sin upon himself, I am blameless. And God, when he looks at me, no longer sees my failures. 
He sees his son's sacrifice. And I am seen as perfect in his sight. Because what Jesus has done. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so here's the deal. You were an alien. You were hostile. You were engaged in evil. You are now holy. You are now blameless. You are now perfect in God's sight. Christ followers, you need to be all in. This is what we are compelled to be. We've got to be all in. This is who we are. Because of what Jesus has done for us. And our only response, our only response is no matter what, to be all in. Because of what God has done for us. I don't know where you might be today. I don't know if you're holding back. But it's time to be all in. It's time to trade all that we naturally are for all that he makes us. And it's time to forget who we are and embrace who we've become. And listen, if you've made that decision, there's, there's all kinds of themes in here that we don't have time to look at, but there's this whole, there's this whole realm that we don't see. There's this whole invisible realm that, that we just don't see and we can't fully wrap our heads around it because it's a spiritual realm and it's a realm that we're not fully cognizant of and we know it exists and yet we don't fully understand everything. But here's what I want you to understand is some of what's going on in that realm, for those of you who've made a decision to follow Jesus, is the idea to come to you and to challenge you and to say, you're not holy. You're not blameless. You're not perfect in God's sight. Church, it breaks my heart when somebody who follows Jesus falls for. It doesn't matter what you've done. Through Jesus, you are holy. Through Jesus, you are blameless. Through Jesus, you are perfect in his sight. And a lot of times, the hardest person to convince 
is the guy staring back at me in the mirror. Oh, because I'm reminded of the mistakes. I'm reminded of the shortcomings. I'm reminded of the failures. And church, sometimes we just need to be reminded of who we are in Jesus. So quit beating yourself up. Just embrace who you are. It's not because of you anyway. It's because of what Jesus did for you. And his love for you. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. See, when we're all in, when we fully, fully just embraced who we are as a result of what Christ has done for us, what happens is our self-importance, our own surroundings, which once were of just immense value, which once were our sole focus, become less and less and less important. And so Paul is in prison as he writes this to the church in Colossae. He's in jail. Because he was telling people who they could become because of what Christ had done for them. And his mindset? Rejoice. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, now what does this mean, lacking in Christ's afflictions? This isn't to promote the idea that Christ's afflictions were somehow not sufficient. They were. But what Paul here is, is presenting is this idea. That Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, but those who hated him would now turn their attention to those spreading the gospel. And those spreading the gospel would become the target. making known what used to be a mystery. A couple weeks ago, I got a brand new set of glasses. And it was right as, right as March Madness had started. And I love March Madness. Not a huge college basketball fan throughout the season, but that machine, I mean, it's just an incredible marketing machine. Just love March Madness. It's It's great. And so I sat down and I put my new glasses on. 
and I could see the screen, and it looked wonderful. And I started to panic a little bit. Because on the bottom line is, is all the news and all the, all the scores of the other games. And I could see the picture great, but I couldn't completely read the bottom line. It was blurry. I'm like, this is not going to do. And so I'm like rubbing my eyes, making sure there's nothing in my eyes, put eye drops in my eyes, I put the glasses back on. Same problem. I take the glasses off, I walk up to the screen, sit back down. I am freaking out because I just taken my contacts out and it's March madness. This is not the time to have your eyes go blurry. It is vitally important that you can read the scoring updates with precision because I need to know if I need to turn one of the other games on or not. This is very, very important to me. And so I'm sitting there, and I take my glasses off, and, and I'm just trying anything. And I notice if I, I, I put them at an angle, I can see, and, and I'm like, okay, yeah, there's something wrong with these glasses. And, and so I go back, and, and I have my eyes rechecked. And my vision changed from the time I had the prescription written to the time I finally got around to ordering the glasses. My vision was blurry. I couldn't see it. Church, for those of us who follow Jesus, our vision's clear. We understand, and it's so obvious to us when we look at creation, when we look at the transformation within us, that God exists, what he's done for us. It's so clear. The mystery has been revealed. Never forget it's not that clear to everyone. And some people just can't see. What we clearly see. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That God for those who've made the decision to follow Christ, powerfully works within us. I understand for those who struggle with the concept of God being invisible. I want to challenge you, He's not always been invisible. Jesus is the picture. I want to challenge you, just look at creation. And church, I want to challenge you. 
that we need to be the representation of an invisible God to the world that can't see Him. God is working within us. And we need to be at work showing the difference. To those around us. And so church, here's a couple questions that I want to leave you with this morning. What is one thing, one thing, everybody can do this, all right? Everybody can look at our lives. What is one thing we can start doing this week to better reflect Christ? Just one. Just start at one. I know some of you are like, oh, I can do so much. Just start at one. One thing. This week, just focus on it. One thing that you can do. Better reflect Christ. And on the flip side, what is one thing? One thing you can stop doing. This week to better reflect Christ. And let's start there. Baby steps. Let's start one thing. Let's stop one thing. With the sole purpose of knowing who we were. But now knowing who we are. We're no longer aliens. We're no longer actively engaged in evil. We're no longer seen as hostile. But we're seen as holy and blameless and perfect in God's sight because of the work of Jesus. God, I pray. I pray for the person right now who says they're seeking you. And God, they're just struggling because they can't see you. God, I pray you would open their eyes. I pray for the person who thinks science builds a more compelling argument. And God, I pray that you would just put within their heart the question that science simply cannot answer. God, I pray for the person who isn't re yet ready just to give up of themselves. And you would just show them their natural state. God, I pray that they would challenge, change that as they're challenged with it. And trade that to be seen as holy and blameless 
and perfect as a result of what your son Jesus did when he died on the cross for their sin and for my sin. And he rose again three days later victoriously. Oh, and God, I pray that we as the church would be a picture of you to those around us. So God, right now, give us the power to start one thing and to stop one thing this week in our efforts to reflect you. In your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.